0: Let us pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the church, for the glorious body of Christ. We thank You for making us living members, stones in this holy temple You are building, a house in which You dwell with Your Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we give You praise today for Christ's work in and through the church, for the word preached, for the waters of baptism poured, For the bread and wine of the Eucharist divided and shared. We thank you for gifting your church with officers to serve and lead your people. And we thank you that you have given us the great privilege of sharing in Christ's mission to the nations. Most of all, we praise you for Christ's precious blood shed to redeem the church from sin and death forever. And so we give you all glory, O Heavenly Father, with your eternal Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, if you will remain standing out of reverence for the Word of God. This is from Ephesians chapter 4. Continuing the earlier reading, I will pick up in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended... What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love this is the word of the lord be to God. let us pray father we pray now that you would speak your word your truth to us in love that we might speak the truth to others in love father Help us to grasp the apostolic vision of the church, what it means to be the body and bride of Christ, and to live out that vision here in our own church body. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What is the church? What the church is, is on display every Lord's Day when we gather. But it is especially on display on a day like today, where we have a baptism, which is uh, how God uh, enfolds us into the church. So in baptism today, we gained a new member. It's on display in ordination. Ordination is the way new officers are designated in the church. And today we were given by God a new officer. Today's service really displays the fullness of what the church is. As we're gathered together for baptism, for ordination, for the word, for the supper. It's one of those Sundays when just about everything the church does as a church, as a gathered community, is present in one service. Plus, as I mentioned in the announcements this morning, it is Mother's Day. Uh, And, of course, we know that the church is our mother. She is our mother who is above. She is the mother of all believers. And so, as Calvin says, she gives us birth in the waters of baptism. She nourishes us at her table. She instructs us and imparts wisdom to us in the Scriptures. And she disciplines us when we fall into sin. We cannot live as Christians without her. You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church as your mother. So happy Mother's Day to all mothers, but especially we wish happy Mother's Day to Mother Church. Uh, I recently heard an evangelical leader, I won't say who it was, uh, but I recently heard an evangelical leader talking about problems facing the church. And he said, what we really need to recognize is that the church is a people, not a place. And so he said, we need to stop talking about going to church, and we need to start being the church. Stop just going to church and start being the church. Now, I'm at least a little bit sympathetic with that. Uh, We do need to be the church, and what it means to be the church certainly extends far beyond what happens in a Sunday gathering when we go to church. But here's the problem I have with that. Going to church will always be central to being the church. You can't be unless you go. In fact, it is as we go that we become. We go to church in order to become the church. God gathers His church each Lord's Day so that we can be the church and do church the rest of the week. And indeed, without this gathering, without going to church, our attempts to be the church in the world would quickly disintegrate. It's really the Lord's Day liturgy that forms the church as the church. The church can't be the church without going to church. On the Lord's Day. What happens here on a Sunday uh, is is crucial. It's absolutely crucial to the Christian life. Think about it from this angle. What do you miss if you're not here on a Sunday? You know, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. What do you miss if, if you don't go to church? The bottom line is that the church is the only place you can receive all that you need for life and salvation. John Calvin, again, just to cite Calvin, said they are insane who neglect these means, the, the means of the church, the word and the sacrament. They are insane who neglect these means and still hope to be perfect in Christ, as is the case with those fanatics who content themselves with a private reading of Scripture and imagine they do not need the ministry of the church. Calvin said it's insane to think you don't need the church. You're a fanatic. Martin Luther answered the question this way. Why go to church? He who would find Christ must first of all find the church. How would one know where Christ and his faith were if one did not know where his believers are? And he who would know something of Christ must not trust himself or build his own bridges into heaven through his own reason. But he must go to the church, visit and ask of the same. For outside of the church is no truth, no Christ. No salvation. The holy Christian church is the principal work of God for the sake of which all things were made. In the church, great wonders daily occur, such as the forgiveness of sins, triumph over death, the gift of righteousness and eternal life. Let me bring it a little closer to our own time. Here's how C.S. Lewis answered the question. Uh, Lewis was a very reluctant convert to the Christian faith. If you know anything about his story, he said he had to be dragged kicking and screaming out of his atheism into Christian faith. But he was also a very reluctant churchman. Uh, Even after he came to the faith, he was very reluctant to go to church. He had to be dragged kicking and screaming to church. This is how he described his experience. When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to church. I disliked very much the church's hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems, set to sixth-rate music. People have been complaining about church music for a long time. (laughs) But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. In church, I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit began peeling off. I realized that the hymns were being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. Church gets you out of your solitary conceit. Why go to church? Because it gets us out of ourselves. Why go to church? Because everything a sinner could ever need is found here. You need forgiveness in Christ's blood? Absolution is declared in church every week. You need wisdom and encouragement? You will find it in the public reading and preaching of the Word. You need to belong to a community? You'll experience communion when we partake Of the broken body and the poured out blood. The communion meal. Together, the communion meal gives form to a community. It gives rise to a community that shares a common life. See, every Sunday you're reminded of what you most need to be reminded of. You're reminded that Jesus is bigger than all your sins. All the sins you've committed. You're reminded that Jesus is bigger than all the sins that have been committed by others against you. Every Sunday... Jesus gives and we receive. Every Sunday, Jesus makes Himself available to His people here in the gathering of the saints. You know, we like to talk about, American Christians like to talk about how Jesus died for me. And we like to say things like, even if I was the only sinner in the world, Jesus would have died, Jesus would have shed His blood for me. And certainly the Scriptures do speak that way. Paul in Galatians can say that Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. That's true. But you know, the biblical emphasis again and again is really on Jesus dying, not for me, but for us. Jesus dying for the church. Jesus laying down His life for the sheep. Jesus sacrificing Himself for His bride. You're not the only one Jesus died to save. He died to redeem a countless multiply. Multitude, and indeed to form those he died for into a new society, God's new society, God's new humanity. The church is a colony of heaven on earth. The church is the body and bride of Christ. Indeed, it's not blasphemous to say that Christ is incomplete. Without His church. Paul says something very much like that in Ephesians 1. Christ without His church would be a bodiless head or a brideless husband. It just can't be. The church completes Christ and fulfills Christ and Christ fills His church. That's why you need to go to church. Because when we gather, we embody what it means to be the church in its most concentrated form. Why do you need to go to church? You need to come here because Christ is here with us. Working through us and working through His appointed means. You need to come to church because here we find Christ who is the sum and substance of our salvation. I think one of the problems we have is there are so many alternatives. We have so many substitutes, but I have to tell you, except no substitutes for the church. You know, one thing I hear people doing today is trying to do church online. You know, so you have a you know a virtual pastor and sort of a, a, a virtual community. And I don't doubt you could find a better sermon on the internet than the one I'm preaching this morning. And you could probably find more excellent music on iTunes than what we're singing this morning. But that misses the point. In fact, what that does, it really just baptizes American consumerism. Because if that's the way you approach church, you're really just concerned with what's in it for me. What can I get out of it? But the gospel doesn't work that way. The gospel's not a product to be marketed, the gospel forms a community of flesh and blood people, of sinners who are renewed and reborn. And this salvation is experienced in this community that we call the church. In fact, the church is the shape of God's salvation, the manifestation of God's kingdom in the world in the present time. You cannot live the normal Christian life apart from going to church and gathering with God's people. You cannot be the church without going to church. The whole Christian life flows out of what we do when we gather as the church. When we gather for church as the church on the Lord's Day. You can think about it this way. The success of any team depends upon the health of its players. How many teams in various sports have had great seasons only to have that great season train wrecked by an injury to a key player? Well, guess what? When you come to church, you're coming to a hospital for sinners. We've all been wounded throughout the week. What happens when we come here on Sunday? This is a hospital for sinners where your wounds get cleaned up and bandaged. And you get the medicine you need to strengthen you. You're healed. So don't just come to church to check off a box. Come to church as if your life depended on it. Because it does. When you come here, God is preparing you to serve Him in the rest of life. God's not just interested in your spiritual life. I don't even know what that is. What's a spiritual life? What's that mean? God's not just interested in your spiritual life. He's interested in your life. In all of it. In in every part of it. Every piece of it. And the engine that drives the transformation of your whole life is here on the Lord's Day. God gathers us for worship and training. And then God scatters us for service and mission. Now in this passage we've read out of Ephesians 4. We see the Apostle Paul giving us his own inspired vision for the church. And he describes here God's goals for the church. We don't have time to go through this whole passage bit by bit in detail. It certainly deserves that. But what we're going to try to do this morning is summarize his message here. Paul's vision for the church in Ephesians 4 really boils down to unity and maturity. So let's look at each one of these. Unity and maturity. And we'll see how they feed into each other. Unity. Paul here is very concerned about unity. Paul opens this chapter speaking to them from his apostolic heart. And he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Now what's that mean? Prisoner of the Lord. It means he's the Lord's prisoner. He's the Lord's slave. He belongs to the Lord. He must do what the Lord wants. But it also means he's been imprisoned because of the Lord. Because of his loyalty to the Lord. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you. I beg you, I plead with you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, Paul is urging these Christians, become what you already are. Live in accord with your true identity as the people of God. And when that happens, what's it going to look like? There are going to be certain virtues that are manifested, not just in your individual life, But these virtues will come to characterize the community as a whole. He's speaking here corporately, describing the common life of the church. What's going to happen? He lists humility and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. And then we get to the goal. All of those virtues produce a certain result. This is what he's urging them to do in verse 3. He says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All those virtues that the Apostle Paul is urging them to produce all aim at this, maintaining unity. Now notice, he doesn't say, go get unity. Go create unity. He says, preserve it. Maintain it. Unity in Christ between believers is a given. All believers in Christ are part of God's new humanity in Christ. We're all one. God has made us one. And so what Paul is saying is, now live like it. Unity should prevail within churches and indeed between churches because we are united in Christ. That is a fact. It's not something we can achieve or attain or produce. That unity is given to us and now we're to preserve it or maintain it. And so you have to ask yourself, am I doing my part to maintain and manifest the unity of the church? That's a huge question that you could go all different directions with this. How do you maintain and manifest the unity of the church? Let me just give you a couple examples here. It may mean forgiving offenses that a brother commits against you. At the end of this chapter, you know, Paul, as, he, as you go further into this chapter, beyond the part that we read, he starts talking about what the corporate life of the church should look like in more detail. You come to the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says, Forgive one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God. In other words, what Paul says is that the church, you know, as God's people, the church should reflect God's way of life. We should be mimickers of God in how we forgive one another, how we forgive those who sin against us. Mimic God in offering free forgiveness to those who sin against you. That will maintain and manifest the unity of the church. When sin isn't forgiven within the body, that unity breaks down. It's obscured. Or maintaining unity might mean recognizing other Christians as brothers and sisters, even if they're quite different from you in all kinds of ways. It may mean befriending people you would never associate with if it weren't for the fact that Jesus dragged the two of you into the same church. Stanley Harrowah says, whatever it means to be a Christian, it at least involves the discovery of friends you never knew you had part of what church life is, discovering friends you never knew you had, brothers and sisters you never knew you had. Paul talks about this a lot in, in earlier in this letter in chapter two where he talks about how Christ through his death has not only reconciled us to God, but he also has reconciled Jew and Gentile. Now whenever we read about that in the New Testament, God reconciling Jew and Gentile together in Christ, you know it's sort of easy for us to just pass right on by it because we think Jew, Gentile, what could that have? To do with us. It doesn't mean much to us, but that's only because of our historical distance. See, the reality is in the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles despised each other. And of course, different groups within the Gentiles despised each other as well. Racism was just built into the very fabric of their cultures. Racism was a way of life. Why do we think racism is some great sin today? Because we've had 2,000 years of the gospel permeating our culture. where We say, no, that can't be a way of life. It's wrong. It's a violation of what God calls us to be. Think about this. Maybe, maybe it's a way of getting at the whole Jew-Gentile thing. What's the most hostile race relationship you know of right now? Maybe in your own experience. Or, or perhaps just in the world at large, as we hear things in the news. You know, maybe it's blacks and whites in the Sandtown part of Baltimore. That's what's dominated the news lately. Okay, imagine this: imagine people who hate each other, who don't trust each other, who indeed want to kill each other, who won't even view the other as human, and imagine them suddenly, almost overnight, being at peace with one another sharing meals with one another, not poisoning the food. Loving each other, forgiving each other. That's what the church did in the ancient world. That's what the church did. That's the effect the Gospel had. The Gospel was all about reconciling enemies. People who had been at odds with one another for centuries. The church brought them together and united them. People of different color skins people with different nationalities, people with different socioeconomic classes, uh, people with different customs and, and cultural backgrounds, all gathering together, all coming together as one in the church. Now, they didn't even each have their own church. Had there been a church for Jews and a church for Gentiles, that would have been a complete contradiction of what Christ died to achieve. Now, of course, it wasn't always easy. Much of the New Testament was written to deal with problems that cropped up by Jew and Gentile beginning to live together, live with each other in community in the church. Several letters in the New Testament were written to deal with that. It's kind of like you know you have these. It's kind of like you have a marriage, and then you know you've got this. You got to do marital counseling sometimes if there are problems, and that's kind of what these New Testament letters often are. But you have to see this throughout the New Testament. There is one church. Jesus is not a polygamist. There is one bride of Christ to which we all belong. And in fact, in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul goes on to describe this oneness in a sevenfold way. And that number there is symbolic. It symbolizes fullness or perfection. This is perfect unity found in the church. He says we're one body. That is, we share a common life. One spirit. The spirit who binds us all together in Christ. One hope means we share a common future. One Lord. There's one master we all obey and who we're all going to answer to. One faith. We confess the same truth. One baptism. We've all entered into this church in the same way. The doorway of baptism. And one God and Father of us all. In other words, we are one big, happy family. This one church under God, indivisible. In the church, it's all for one and one for all. Christ has one church, one people. And Paul wants us to understand how important it is to manifest this unity. He wants us to be eager in finding ways to express this unity. And that means we have to hate disunity. We have to hate disunity among God's people. Again, within this church, we have to be at peace with one another. And with other faithful Christian churches, we must be at peace Well, and you think, well, how can we do that? You know, Now we've got all these denominations and all of that. What can we even begin to do about this? This is what C.S. Lewis said. The time is always ripe for reunion. Divisions between Christians are a sin and a scandal. And Christians ought at all times to be making contributions towards reunion if it is only by their prayer. It might be that's all you can do is pray about it But Jesus is praying about it too. And when you join your prayers to His, you can know they're going to be effective. This unity is crucial to the life of the church. It's this unity that makes our mission effective. Think about uh, Jesus in the upper room with His disciples in John 13. He says, "...the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another." It's our love for one another that proves we're disciples. It's our love for one another that makes Jesus beautiful and believable to the world around us. When you love each other in the church, you are the greatest apologetic for Jesus there is. When you love each other in the church, you are the greatest proof of the gospel. There is. Our oneness, our love for one another is proof. That Jesus is the world's rightful king and savior. In Birmingham we have a lot of church division and I think a lot of that is sort of a luxury we can afford because let's face it, Birmingham is something of a, of a little Christendom bubble. Indeed, the, I'd say the last vestiges of Christendom, of the, the old Christendom, uh, are, are here uh, in our part of the country. But we shouldn't take that for granted. We shouldn't assume that's going to last. A tidal wave of secularism has been washing over Western civilization for several generations now. And that tide of secularism is going to wash over Birmingham as well, just as it already has or is washing over most of the rest of our country. We have to ask, will we be ready for it? And what I would say is as that tidal wave hits, it's only going to be a united church that can withstand the secular onslaught as we encounter a culture that is more and more hostile to us and and the things we hold dear and the things we believe, as we encounter more and more people who are unchurched and indeed who are hostile to the church, they're going to need more than mere words. They're going to need more than mere words. They're going to need to see the church functioning as God's new community. A kind of counterculture of love and truth united in Christ. They're going to need to see the church functioning as God's new society, His new humanity. They're going to need to see that all of their social programs and so forth are really just parodies of what the church is in reality. The church is the true great society, the true United Nations, the true global family. And that's why divisions and infighting amongst Christians are so scandalous. Unity matters. Catholicity, that's just the fancy term for the church's unity extending across space and across time. Catholicity matters. But what we see here in Ephesians 4 is that maturity also matters. In fact, unity brings maturity and maturity brings unity. Paul here focuses on the oneness of the church, but he also ties that oneness to the growth or to the perfecting of Paul describes the goal of maturity here in verses 13 through 15. Look at what he says in verse 13. He speaks of the church coming to unity in the faith as also coming to maturity. The church becoming a perfect man or a mature man. So that we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, Christ himself is the mature man. The church's goal is to share in that maturity. To grow up into Christ. To attain the same maturity that Christ Himself has. And and so in verse 14, He says, We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by the prevailing winds of the day, by cunning and deceitful men. But rather, as verse 15 says, Instead, we must speak the truth in love and grow up. That is, and mature into Him who is the head that is Christ. So Christ's maturity is the church's goal. We aim for and strive for Christ-likeness. But how do we get there? We'll go back to verse 7. To each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Saving grace gives rise to serving grace. Spiritual gifts are given for the sake of service. It's as though Christ gives us all superpowers. Superpowers so we can serve, so we can do His work in the church and even in the world. Uh, Superpowers, these spiritual gifts, so we can serve within His body and do His mission in the world. We become mature by ministering Christ's grace to each other. Again, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says God works on us through each other. Lewis says Christians are mirrors of Christ to each other. We are carriers of Christ to other men. Christ is in each of us. We're to manifest Christ and minister Christ to each other and to the world. That's true of all Christians. That's what Paul says about all Christians. But then Paul focuses in on officers in the church. Officers have a special role in bringing us all to maturity. And so Paul quotes from Psalm 68 and then explains what it means. And we can't go into the details of it, but the gist seems to be this. God descended from heaven to earth in the incarnation. And even descended into the heart of the earth in his death. But now he has ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. Psalm 68 says, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, if you go back and read the whole thing, you'll find it's a psalm of God's triumph. It's all about the exodus, And the conquest, that's sort of the backstory to the whole psalm. How God rescued His people from their enemies in Egypt and marched them through the wilderness with His people in His train to Mount Zion to the throne land where He would ascend Mount Zion and be enthroned among His people. Paul takes all of that and now transfers it to Christ's ascension. He says, this is really the fulfillment, Christ's ascension. Christ has made His victory march into the heavens. He's the risen, conquering King And I think Paul's also playing off a a common practice in the ancient world. In the ancient world, it was customary for conquering kings to give gifts to their people after winning a great battle. They would come back from battle with the spoils of victory and distribute gifts to their people. And so Christ, as the triumphant king, has given gifts to his people. But I think there's another echo, another connection here. This language in Psalm 78 that Paul picks up on, on the Lord taking captives for himself, taking a people for himself. It's really an echo of what you find in the book of Numbers, where the Levites, a tribe in Israel, are taken captive by the Lord, so to speak. They're taken captive by the Lord from among the people of Israel to belong to him and to be used by him in a special way for the good of the whole congregation. He takes the Levites captive and then returns them as gifts. To his people. And so Christ has taken and he has given. He has taken men for himself and now given them as gifts to his church. And so, what are these gifts that Christ gives to his church? Specifically, here he's talking about the officers of the church. He lists some of these in verse 11 Apostles and prophets who received divine revelation from God to pass on to the church and so to lay the foundation of the church, evangelists, that is, missionaries and church planters, pastors and teachers who shepherd God's flock and feed at God's work. And had Paul kept going, he would have talked about elders given to oversee and rule the church and deacons who are caregivers and ministers of mercy in the church and administrators in the church. These are the gifts of Christ to serve and lead, to form and shape His congregation. These are the gifts the ascended Christ gives to His people. Indeed, Christ this very day added to our gifts in giving us Greg as a deacon. Greg is God's gift to us. The ascended Christ has taken Greg captive and now given him back to us. Greg is God's Yeah, So Greg, next time somebody says to you, who do you think you are? God's gift to the church. You say, well, as a matter of fact, I am. (laughs) Uh, Maybe that's not quite exactly what it means. But every time a man is ordained, Christ gives a gift to his church. These officers are given, verse 12 says, for the purpose of equipping the saints, that is all of you so equipping the saints, all of you as members of the church, for the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. So that all together, officers and people, we grow to maturity. The officers doing their part, you doing your part. See, the officer's job is to equip you to serve, and then you're to go do it. And that's how it works. That's how the body of Christ functions in a healthy way. It's not just that God gives us gifts Through these officers, the officers themselves are gifts. Gifts given for your good. These gifts are signs of Christ's triumph. Signs that Christ is conquering. These gifts are given to equip you and enable you to use the particular gifts Christ has given you for the edifying of the whole community. The maturing of the whole body of believers. So really, we could put it this way. Officers are gifts given to help you use your gifts to the full so that every member of the body can do his or her part in strengthening and serving the whole. Officers are gifts who train us and equip us to use our gifts. Again, think of it this way. Think of the gifts this way. The gifts Christ gives to His church are like the gifts... Father Christmas gives in the Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Once Aslan is on the move and winter is starting to break, Father Christmas goes around and gives these long overdue gifts. And what you'll notice is they are all immensely practical gifts. So Father Christmas gives to the she-beaver a new sewing machine. He gives to Peter a sword and a shield. He gives to Susan a bow and arrows and a magical horn. Uh, He gives to Lucy a cordial and a dagger. All of these gifts were needful. They were useful. They were practical. They all come in handy later in the story. The gifts were just what they needed. Just what they needed to get the job done. The gifts Christ gives to His church are practical gifts. They're suited to our tasks to enable us to do what He's calling us to do. And so understand, when you use your gifts, it's really Christ who is working through you. You use your gifts to serve. You're ministering the grace of Christ to another. You speak words of truth or encouragement to another. Those are really Christ's words of truth and encouragement. You use your hands, that your hands become helping hands to minister to the needy. Your hands are really Christ's hands. You pray on behalf of the weak or the suffering or the sick. Your faithful prayers are really Christ's prayer. We are the ministers of Christ to one another. I think we've got a great picture of this in how we do the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, Christ gives Himself to us in the bread and the wine. But how do you receive Christ in the Lord's Supper? Think about this. Not from me, not straight from my hands. You don't get the body and the blood straight from me as if you could only get Christ from your pastor. No, you get the bread and the wine from your neighboring Christian who's sitting next to you. You receive that body and that blood. You receive Christ from your neighbor and then you pass it on to the neighbor on the other side. We give and receive Christ to and from one another in the Lord's Supper. I think in the supper we have a beautiful picture of how we give and receive Christ to and from one another. There's an old saying, and it comes from the church fathers, the Eucharist makes the church. The Eucharist forms the church. We are formed as the body of Christ when we share in the body of Christ together at His table. We eat the body of Christ so that we might become the body of Christ. Our Eucharistic practices, our Eucharistic fellowship reveals the shape of Christ's body. And so you all, from the youngest to the oldest, from the least saint to the greatest saint, you all have something to offer, a contribution to to make to the body as a whole. Each of you is a minister of Christ. And when we minister Christ to each other, the body matures and grows. Whatever Christ gives to you, He gives to you for the sake of others. And whatever Christ has given me, He's given me for the sake of you. For your sake. And Paul shows us here. Christ Himself is the measuring stick of our maturity. Do we measure up to the standard of His sacrificial love? The cross is the tape measure. That's how we see how we're doing. Are we living out Christ's new way of being human? Conforming ourselves to the cross. Pouring out our lives even as Christ poured out His life. Building others up in love. That's our call as God's people. Unity and maturity. Let's pray and ask God to make it so. Father, we do thank You for Christ Jesus. We thank You that He laid down His life for us, for His bride, the church. Father, may we imitate that love. May that love flow out from us to others around us, to the world around us. Father, would You use us to grow and build Your church, Your kingdom in the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.